will not be able to send uh, one of us into a with a rocket into the center of a black hole and and check out the singularity and then say hey uh, it's it's actually not the the Planck length it's two times the Planck length or something <laughs> like this because we cannot send out any information right? I mean so that's a that's a real problem the other problem is so-called information paradox as far as the the classical theory is concerned if you if you throw in rocks, refrigerators, and a few cars, and everything else into the black hole, the black hole will all forget that. Hello to the Into the Impossible family. Another phenomenal episode awaits you with Dr. Reinhard Gensel, co-recipient of the 2020 Nobel Prize for the physical discoveries that he and his colleagues made at the center of the Milky Way galaxy, revealing a compact object. The Nobel Committee didn't specify what kind of compact object that was. However, we all kind of suspect it's a massive, supermassive black hole, perhaps with the mass of millions and millions times greater than our sun. He's a very, very open, vulnerable, honest, and hilarious individual who was destined, perhaps, if he didn't get more into physics, to become a great athlete and even participate in the German Olympic team in the 1960s. So he would have won a golden medallion perhaps no matter what he did in life, but today we're talking primarily about his work in astrophysics that garnered him along with Andrea Ghez, my colleague up at UCLA, who I still hope to get on the Into the Impossible podcast. Please, if you are listening out there, Andrea, I'd love to have you on. Uh, but we also get into the importance of mentorship, of how he learned from really two men in his life, two father figures. One, his actual father, Ludwig, who is a great physicist himself. You'll hear him touchingly and lovingly talk about his late father. And also his ideological father, Charlie Towns, Nobel laureate from UC Berkeley, who really inspired this quest to look in the infrared, to peer through the dust that conceals and constrains our vision of the inner workings of the Milky Way galaxy. He's going to hear about that where do we go from here? What can we do with these uh, with this technology? And what he's most excited about. So now, sit back, come along on a ride into the impossible with Professor Reinhard Gensel and yours truly, Brian Keating. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Into the Impossible podcast. I am your fearful host, Dr. Brian Keating, uh, and we have had a segment on this podcast for a long time now called Nobel Minds, where we have featured to date nine Nobel laureates in physics. Still trying to get some other disciplines, Reinhardt, but uh, but so far they've they've all uh, been too busy. Those economists they get they get very busy, uh, but <laughs> but Reinhardt is uh, is a legendary experimental uh, and, uh, and and astrophysicist. He's the co-director of the Max Planck Institute for Extraterrestrial Physics. Uh, professor at LMU, emeritus professor at UC Berkeley, up. From here, and he was awarded the 2020 Nobel Prize in Physics along with Andrea Ghez and Sir Roger Penrose. Um, Andrea has yet to answer my emails to come on the show. I'm hoping she will. <laughs> uh, but Roger was on three or four times uh, just last year, and you and I celebrated along with the world Sir Roger's 90th birthday not too long ago. And I thought it would be a great opportunity to introduce the world to the astrophysics that you do with your collaboration. And uh, and then we could have a discussion about black holes and how mysterious and wonderful they are and where the future of this field is going to go. So first of all, Reinhardt, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Glad to. Glad to. 
So I thought maybe you could show your slides um, that you showed at Sir Roger's 90th birthday party uh, just a few weeks back in August 2021. Uh, Sir Roger is now 3 billion seconds old, like a day over you know, 2 billion, 999 million. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, he's an amazing person, amazing. Uh, he really is. And uh, he's been a great friend and indulged me in some of my questions about uh, singularities, um, extremo black holes, and other things I hope to get into with you. So, Ryan, yeah, you know, you know, Ryan, of course, I mean, we might, might come to this later, but, you know, this, uh, you know, the, uh, the weirdness of black holes, of course, often leads to interesting questions from the audience. And, you know, one of the more common ones, of course, has to do with wormholes. Yeah. And I never knew what really I could say about this because, I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's a speculation, but, you know, how, why would you test it in reality? So I asked, I asked Roger, I said, Roger, you know, I'm being accosted by these questions. And, you know, you're an authority in this, you know, uh, tell me, what, what do you think about wormholes? And he says, oh, rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's not too far off from me. <laughs> I'm hoping to get Kip Thorne on the podcast. He's uh, he's offered to come on. Uh, we haven't been able to make it work. That's to ask him that question. Because I will. After I will. All, with Interstellar, you know. <laughs> I know. And uh, I wanted to just uh, remind, um, you know, me and myself, I, I remembered that we met each other in 2005 at the 90th birthday party for Charlie Towns, who was your advisor. And I later want to talk about recollections of, of Charlie Towns. I know he was a titanic influence in your life. And really, yeah. the, the path to the Nobel Prize really goes in, in large part, you know, alongside him with your work. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah, if you would take us on your 40-year journey that will uh, take us back uh, to where this all began. So, yeah, please. Uh, yeah, well, so, I mean, basically, I mean, there's sort of like a Russian doll uh, situation here. Uh, in the innermost part, there is uh, the research which I'm associated with in my group and uh, the Institute, and of course, in the US, uh, Andrea Guess and her group. And uh, that's sort of the inner part of the Russian doll. The next layer of is the more general question of uh, whether these objects which general relativity predicts uh, to exist, black holes, whether they really are there. And so then uh, what we are doing is just one version of uh, possible approaches, which in fact uh, people have made, and surprisingly so uh, lately with great success actually, uh, uh, to, to test whether this uh, black hole paradigm, as we call it, whether that's correct. Uh, the next level of the of the, the the doll has to do with the universe as a as a more global entity, and the fact, okay, uh, if you if you had such things as black holes, what is their role? You know, who ordered them, so to speak, and what they have they are they just there, and and what's their role? And so that that is an extremely surprising story, which. Also, has been you know we have been making empirical uh, progress on this. Then comes the next layer of of, of the doll, which uh, has to do with general relativity. Uh, I mean, here, here's a theory which is uh, uh, to start with uh, associated with you know extremely famous uh, theoreticians, Albert Einstein to start with, but then others uh, of course as well, uh, Schwarzschild, uh, Kerr. Uh, Penrose, uh, 
etc. And so the question then is, um, is this theory, you know, correct? And then most uh, most um, uh, theorists, but maybe also some of the experimentalists would say, likely not. Mm. <laughs> and and that is sort of surprising. Here's one of the uh, theories which to, to I mean at, at least on 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 the largest scales we know, namely that of the universe, rules supreme, uh, and it rules also apparently supreme on the smallest scales in inside uh, the the cores of, of of black holes, where there supposedly is an infinitely dense thing called the singularity, which you know most. Uh, most of us, of course, feel, ah, oh, okay, something is missing in the theory, which is mm. the, the expansion, the extension to the smaller scales as a quantum theory, and that is, is obviously uh, obviously missing. So this is really amazing that, you know, on the one hand, uh, that theory is now 105 years old, as Zelda Blinds, right, in, in Berlin, uh, 105 years ago, and you're still working on it. So in fact, uh, the experimental studies are just getting going. I mean, uh, you know, if you, if you look into the future, it's very clear where I would put my eggs, okay, gravitational waves. Uh, that's that's clearly the, uh, you know, the ultimate way probably of approaching these things so close as to then perhaps see some deviations from so I think the uh, interesting aspect of the black holes is how much they captivate the the mind and the uh, the intellect of not only you know professional scientists like us, but uh, but the mysteries that they reveal and provoke in the general public. And we've had on many uh, many guests from Lenny Susskind, obviously uh, Sir Roger, Delilah Gates, um, uh, and. The one thing that keeps coming back is that these objects are laboratories. And in some sense, I was a little bit surprised when the committee awarded you and Andrea, um, you know, the prize. Not they didn't say black hole, right? They, they did. Yeah. So what is that? What was the reason for that choice of words? Um, I mean, that's that's I would say I fully agree with that. Mm. They had to, they had to. Uh, you know, because and I think that the Nobel Committee is. I would say generally very good about this. I mean, remember the the prize for um, uh, Ricardo Giacomi was two thousand two or one. Uh, uh, he, he could have he could have gotten it for the detection of uh, stellar black holes, mm. and yet they didn't uh, in in the citation. They wouldn't they wouldn't say it in this way, and the reason is <clears throat> is that of course. Um, what we have not yet shown, really, uh, none of the observations has shown is uh, that the so-called metric, which is describing the, um, in, in, in theory, which is describing what we would call these objects uh, without charge, uh, and which have a, uh, two numbers associated with them according to the theory, a mass and a spin, and that is it. Yeah. Okay, so that's a remarkable thing that these objects are, you know, extremely simple theoretically. There's only two numbers. So that means the theory says there are no hills, there are no valleys, there are no, you know. There's no uh, hair. There's no hair. <laughs> and therefore, there's no hair. That's right. And so this, this, this test of no hair, namely in mathematical terms, that all other 
properties of the object in terms of higher moments of mass distribution can be predicted by these two numbers. Uh, that is missing, okay? That is missing both from the existing work uh, on the supermassive black hole in the galactic center, and it is missing, uh, in fact, also for the uh, in spiral of stellar black holes with uh, LIGO. And, and so that's why, you know, one has to be really you know, careful and say, well, we have everything we've shown, everything LIGO has shown is that there are objects which, you know, look like black holes and probably are black holes, but uh, we are still not there. It seems unprovable to say, you know, because how else, what other evidence could one gather? Not not for the singularity, we'll get to that later, but uh, for the properties that, you know, the Event Horizon Telescope has shown, that LIGO has shown, that you, Andrea, and your group has shown, uh, what else do we need before? Well, we okay, if you, yeah, that's a very good question, Brian, but I think the answer most people would say is no air theorem indeed, and uh <clears throat> and and so uh, for the gravitational waves, what would have to be done is um, is the following. If you think of a black hole as really sort of an entity and you bang at it, <laughs> it starts to oscillate, okay? And so there is a characteristic, uh, what one calls a quasi-normal quasi uh, uh, frequency about it, which is essentially the time light takes uh, to move around the black hole on the innermost stable orbit for the light, that's called a photon orbit. And so, if you if you suppose you know the mass of the black hole exceedingly well, and then you had a you know a, a piece of light going around this 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 innermost stable orbit, and it would exactly follow uh, that orbital time scale then you have proven, and you knew, of course, the spin, I should say. You know the mass and the spin, and now you make that measurement of this orbital time scale of the photons. Then, then you really have proven the noise, or one version of it. And indeed, that's exactly what, in principle, the gravitational wave community would like to do. Why haven't they done it? Uh, well, because the objects which they have looked at so far, namely stellar black holes, uh, have a very short time scale of 100 milliseconds and less for this time. And there is not much time to build up signal noise ratios. Mm. So it's just a, a practical thing. The objects are small, the time scales are short. And in fact, because they are small, the signals are really weak, although they are actually, and the, the objects are not that far away. So the ultimate object, everyone knows, is a massive black hole. And a stellar black hole which uh, inspires into it. For that, you cannot do that on the ground because of the frequencies of the orbital uh, inspiral is much too long, initially at least. Uh, but because it's long, you can make very exceedingly precise measurements. So the space mission we all hope to have in space in about 15, 20 years uh, might do that. Okay, so then then we could. Could do it. Another way of doing it is uh, in the galactic center is to uh, you know measure the measure the spin. We're trying to do this with stars, which are still further in than the ones which we had seen previously. Um, if you're lucky, we will see such a star. And then uh, uh, if the radio astronomers could measure the size of the photon orbit, so to speak, uh, it's called the shadow of the 
the black hole. We know the mass exceedingly well, then we have a test of the Mm. Uh, of the Noah theorem as well, so I think there's there's good hope that this this will actually come about. But then, as you say, this does not solve the quantum problem of the of the whole thing. Quantum problem number one is we will not be able to send uh, one of us into a with a rocket into the center of a black hole and and check out the singularity and then say, hey. Uh, it's it's actually not the the Planck length. It's two times the Planck length or something <laughs> like this, because we cannot send out any information. Right? I mean, so that's a that's a real problem. The right. other problem is uh, the so-called information paradox, uh, which is basically uh, as far as the the classical theory is concerned. If you if you throw in rocks uh, or, or uh, refrigerators and a few cars and everything else into the black hole, the black hole will all forget that. And so if you come back later and, and check it out, so to speak, you wouldn't know any evidence. But the quantum theory would tell you, no, absolutely not. The quantum numbers are stored somewhere. And there's even some proposals where they might be stored, namely exactly on the event horizon surface. And so then it might drift out like fumes quantum fumes and, and so if you want to speculate that that may be uh, maybe sort of a, a thing of the future and of course uh, it could be that you know this 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 will change the the properties near the event horizon enough that it's measurable mm. it's extremely fascinating that uh, you know it takes 100 years and we're still not done right i mean this <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the more that we learn, the more mysterious these objects become. Uh, I talk with Lenny Suskin, who does have this proposal of the stretched horizon, as you just said, the kind of one, you know, plank length above the what we would consider to be the event horizon. <clears throat> I actually don't think it's a important distinction that, you know, we say, oh, we can't observe these things in, in theory even, because the event horizon shields it. Uh, what I have an issue with is that people will talk about um, the need for quantum gravity based on the existence of an unobservable singularity, uh, either in a black hole or at the origin of the universe, which I study. So these are two, as Roger and Stephen Hawking showed, uh, unobservable, even in, in principle, uh, regimes. And uh, now that's not to say that they're right. Uh, it could be that the uh, that there was a collapsing Epoch before the universe originated, as you as you probably know, your advisor Charlie Towns, when he won his Nobel Prize, his students Arno Penzias and and Robert Wilson were busy measuring the CMB, and when they measured the CMB in 1964 and then released in 1965, uh, their interpretation, well, I should say the interpretation of Jim Peebles and Robert Dickey and others, was that it was the after effect of a pre-collapsing phase to the universe that we had witnessed the cycle. They never mentioned the Big Bang once in that paper. And I think a lot of people had trouble with that, the notion of Fred Hoyle and, and others. Um, and I wonder, what do you make of these controversies in physics? The late, great Steven Weinberg, he just passed away. Uh, he used to say that physics thrives on crises, but luckily there aren't so many crises. Well, I, I mean, I think, for, first of all, of course, it, this is the scientific principle, and that's what uh, uh, what makes us indeed uh, capable of telling truth from fake news. Okay, uh, the famous fake news, uh, and that is 
that we have a, say, a theory in this case, which is already pretty well tested in some regimes, and we keep getting going at it. Okay, I mean, I, but you know, the, the people are different. I, I think I've, um, you know, uh, even very good astrophysical theorists would tell me, uh, say, a few years ago, before our latest uh, breakthrough, in a way, uh, why not? Why are, you, why are you doing this? I mean, everyone knows that general relativity is correct. <laughs> uh, okay, much much more important is, so to speak, the, the cosmological evolution of the black hole. That that is important because that affects uh, galaxies and how they grow or not grow. But but why do why do you try to test general relativity? Well, because my my physics side tells me, um, you know, if you can't verify all the predictions of the theory, then the theory is is in danger, so to speak. You know, it could be wrong. Yeah. And we better we better check it out. And in this particular case, of course, uh, by testing general relativity in the galactic center, we are also testing uh, this, this this paradigm that galactic nuclei, in fact, almost all galaxies, we now think, uh, have such a such a beast uh, in in their midst, and 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 in fact, uh, it's a symbiotic relationship, right? So that they grew grew up together and grow and and after a while. The black hole became active typically and started actually, uh, you know, damaging some of the galaxy <laughs> that embedded in. <laughs> when I um, when I think about the future of your field, and I do, I definitely want you to show these wonderful uh, images that you showed at Roger's uh, birthday uh, fest shrift, as you might say. But uh, before you do, um, you know, the thought occurred to me that a lot of what we've learned in recent years, thanks to LIGO and other projects, was also what falls under what's known as multi-messenger astronomy, where you observe something in light, um, in electromagnetic waves and in gravitational waves. Is there hope with the tools uh, that you and your colleagues are developing that there could be a multi-messenger signal, say, if if one of these gas clouds, S2, whatever you guys call it, if one of those were to be gobbled up, and you were to witness it with your AO technology, et cetera, on a massive telescope. Um, and is there any hope that LIGO or some perturbation to the Milky Way's black hole, that that could be a multi-messenger signal that would tell us something? That's, uh, very, that's a very interesting question. I mean, the, the answer uh, at first would have to be yes, but highly unlikely. Okay, um, uh, why unlikely? Well, the, the, the situation is, for moderately um, small black holes, the stars, which they come too close, do get disrupted, uh, so to speak, and then uh, outside of the event horizon, and then they fall into, partly at least, uh, into the black hole, part of it gets ejected. And actually, it, it, in the galactic center, there is some evidence we have that there's gas on, a, on, a, on an orbit which is almost straight in, if you like, um, uh, which, which, which went into the central region and then came back out again uh, on, on this orbit. But it's gas, not, not, a, not, not, a, not a star, or at least not only a star. And this gas cloud was extended. And so it's very, very much possible that that is one of a case of one, one of a you know yeah, a class of stars which from time to time you know do in fact come so close to the 
center of a galaxy that they would get disrupted. And at that time, of course, uh, you would see uh, gravitational waves. The problem is that this, statistically speaking, happens once every you know, 30,000 years or so. So the chances of catching one of them and that all in the galactic center is really very low. In the more general sense, absolutely not. I think in a general sense, Mm, we are now in a, in, a, in a time, as you well know, where people are looking for these transients and they're finding them. And so if you then have a sensitive enough gravitation wave detector, you could look uh, at, at these regions and then perhaps uh, detect them. So chances are that this, this will, will be possible. Whether it's happening in the galactic center there, we really have to appeal to uh, <laughs> a lot of luck. This is sort of a very nice movie, which, in fact, Andrea made uh, about 10 years ago um, to just show the inner works here, if you like. So these are our test particles, our stars, which we've been looking at. And it's remarkable. Any theorist 20 years ago when we discovered these would have sworn that these stars cannot exist. Why? Well... You know, we have a very good theory, of course, in principle, uh, how these clusters around a black hole or stars should look like. And that is because the dominant thing is gravity, right? And so stars, if they're heavy, will over time move toward the center. That's correct, and get close to the black hole. But the time it takes are billions of years these objects which we're seeing here in this movie all are less than, say, 50 million years old. Mm. So they couldn't have possibly, over time, by equilibrium processes, as we say, um, you know, moved into the center. So the question is, therefore, how did they? And so they are in a tremendous gift to us because some of these stars, in fact, not few, this year we had another three stars coming in, uh, just like this famous star S2 did in 2002 and then again in 2018 and came as close as about 15 light hours. So that's sort of the, you know, on, on the order of 100 times the distance between the sun and the earth. So that's solar system scales. Yeah. Tremendous, okay, tremendous. That gives us the, the this ultimate way of testing it because it, it does go so deep into the into the central region. But how, you know, who, who did that? Who, who made these stars to go in there? And so that's a, uh, one of these things in, in, in science, in, in, say in astronomy, certainly, that the universe has all these surprises for us. And sometimes the surprises are wonderful. Right? <laughs> they really, they really help the field to go forward enormously because before we had this orbit of, of this particular star, we had sort of a statistical uh, assessment of the situation. Not that it would be any different, but I mean, most physicists would have said, yeah, that sounds uh, plausible that there is a mass in there, but black hole, why? Could it not be a cluster of neutron stars or something else? And that's, that's exactly, the, despite the fact that we had this breakthrough, why the Nobel Committee is still sort of a little cautious on this because uh, we, we we could you could you could think although not really anymore that it's not a single black hole for instance 
but uh, you know, a, a double black hole. We think we have now actually excluded that also, at least to the extent that the second object is is more massive than say a thousand solar masses or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, there's all of these things you have to check in, and that's check check out, and and so that's where uh, time is needed, and and that's where these journeys become uh, pretty long long lived. But but you're right, if you then get someone to help you, like uh, gravitational waves, or uh, very very interesting for us would be this radio imaging. Um, then then you could make progress in in a in much shorter time scale. Okay. Yeah. And when I think about the, you know, technology versus the theoretical technology, you know, the hardware versus the, you know, software, so to speak, um, I think about LIGO, obviously tremendous technology, um, and it's a purely relativistic, uh, in a sense, event horizon, you know, people quibble, are you really seeing the event horizon or just the light shadow? You already mentioned that. I think they're both fascinating, uh, but still you need numerical relativity, you need um, to, to treat it purely relativistically. And interferometry has been around for, you know, what, 80, 90 years. It wasn't new technology in that sense. But I would say um, the technology that you employ, you know, adaptive optics, uh, laser guiding, et cetera, et cetera, um, I think that might be interesting for my audience because typically they're hearing about, well, this is a test of pure general relativity. But if I'm if I'm not mistaken, the fastest velocity of, say, S2 was about a few percent of the speed of light. Yeah, about two and a half percent. Yeah. Yeah. So you wouldn't necessarily, I mean, you could do a lot with Kepler, <laughs> just using Kepler and not Einstein. And so in a sense, the uh, the, the compact object or, or whatever, as a test laboratory for general relativity, it's also a test for classical relativity, which makes it more interesting to me, in a sense, uh, that the, t- the adaptive optics and the, and the story of this 40-year journey, as you described it, um, where that begins and, and how, how can we see through this? I mean, if you look up at the Milky Way and I've been to the Southern Hemisphere, I've been, you know, I've seen the Magellanic Cloud. You can't see, you know, Sag A star with your naked eye. It's just impossible. That's right. That's right. We, the Milky Way is this rotten, filthy place with lots of dust, just like yes. Los yes. Angeles is. And uh, <laughs> I want to know, um, how can you see through the dust? I mean, how is this even possible that, uh, that we could penetrate through this cloud that veils our vision and obscures everything. Right. So, so that, that brings us back to uh, the 70s, actually. And, and in fact, uh, Charles Towns and, and his, his, his work in Berkeley, uh, which I, whom I then joined uh, as, a, as, a, as a postdoc initially and then as a faculty member uh, in the early 80s. So the situation was... Uh, that the so-called quasars had been discovered in the 1960s uh, by the radio astronomers uh, looking just, you know, what, what does the radio sky look like? And they found compact uh, radio sources, pretty bright. And then they asked their uh, optical colleagues, why don't you take a picture of those? And what do you see? And, and, and then they used Palomar and they came back and said, well, they look like stars. Uh, not very interesting. Uh, and but so luminous, how could that be? And then, then the trick was that once you look at their spectra in the optical, you can see that they're actually highly redshifted in, in terms of their line emission. And therefore, if you interpret that that uh, redshift as a as an effect of the expanding universe, and the, uh, uh, you apply then the sort of the conversion from 
from redshift into distance, and all of a sudden the objects, uh, you know, are billions of light years away. And and so what looks like a little star actually is enormously luminous. So that went on in the 1960s. And okay, people then start to think, you know, what create all of this energy? And turns out if you if you would pack stars in that region, uh, even if you if you work hard on it, uh, it won't it won't give you the the kind of uh, phenomena you would see because by, by that time not only optical light had been seen in radio light, but also X-rays and, and gamma rays. Your multi-messenger, uh, as you see, and so 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 it's clear these are unusual objects. They really have to, and so luminous, thousand to up to a hundred thousand times more luminous than the entire Milky Way. How can you can have that? And that's where the, uh, this crazy idea of black holes came in. Now they weren't called called black holes back then. They were called Schwarzschild's uh, throats. <laughs> the strange word for nowadays. Okay, Schwarzschild throats. And so that that is within a, within a decade, people basically con- convince themselves that the most efficient way to generate energy is to let material fall onto a big black hole. And before the material disappears behind the event horizon, that energy uh, which is released can be uh, leading to this enormous amount of uh, radiation. So next question, how do you test that? Uh, well, to test gravity, we, we know what we have to do. We think of the solar system, right? I mean, the solar system has our sun dominating the entire mass, and we have planets. And so if you go back to Tisha Bra and Kepler, right, that the way mm, to, to do this right is you basically observe the motions of the planets. And uh, then you use Kepler's laws or an, on Newton, and then you find that if there is a dominant central mass and the uh, planets are on orbits around that mass. Well, then the, the innermost planets move faster uh, than the outer ones by an absolutely predictable amount. And if you test that in a solar system, then you you have, so to speak, uh, you know, uh, proof that the sun dominates uh, the mass by far. Well, so the same idea, you would want to use... Um, uh, also in quasars, but they're too far away. That was really very clear. They were too far away. And so then it was a, a critical paper by two British uh, very famous uh, theorists, Donald Lindenbell and Martin Rees in 71, who basically speculated at the time, well, maybe maybe these black holes, which uh, have been talked about now in these quasars, uh, are not only present in these rare quasars, but maybe they are they're, 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 they're everywhere. Perhaps every galaxy has them. It's just that only a few are accreting material at such rates that they are bright and are called quasars. And in fact, that's our picture nowadays, not at that time. So what's the closest galaxy, therefore? Well, our own, by a huge factor. And so in the paper, in this 1971 paper, Lyndon Bell and Rees then actually made a sort of a recipe of what should be done. It's not exactly how it, they didn't mention stars uh, and, and molecules were not known at the time. So they proposed more H1 observations, et cetera, et cetera, and variability studies and so forth. Uh, but in the end, I mean, that's, that's the idea. So uh, 
So let's go ahead and observe then the galactic center and observe all of this. And the answer, of course, is with the radio, you can, but you can't get really close enough, at least not at that time. Uh, what about just looking at the stars or, and so forth? And that is impossible because of the dust uh, in front of the galactic center, which attenuates optical light by so much. Even nowadays, you cannot. Uh, practically observe the galactic center in what we would call the optical uh, band. But if you go to slightly longer wavelengths by, say, a factor of a few, the extinction is so strongly dependent on wavelength uh, that you can peer through the, the dust screen at a few micrometers and certainly at 10 micrometers. And that's where Towns came in because Towns, you see, he got his Nobel Prize for the Invention of the laser and the laser uh, was on the East Coast and, and many years and, and all of that. And then at some point, he decided to move to, move west to California and start a new profession as an astronomer. Okay, but he knew, of course, things which astronomers didn't know, which which was you know lasers, masers, and uh, he he knew about the. Uh, possibly very exciting possibilities with infrared light. And infrared is, is exactly what you need. And so that he, he and his students then build a spectrometer and uh, use that spectrometer to look at Doppler shifts of uh, ionized gas in an infrared line near the galactic center. And sure enough, they saw uh, that the motions of those gas clouds were very large. I, when I then joined, we did ever more of that, and so by the mid '80s, we we had a we wrote a big nature paper saying galactic center is a few solar has a few solar million solar mass black hole. So there it is, uh, you know, <laughs> mid '80s. So that's uh, 40 years, uh, 30, 30 plus years ago. So it's it's clear that we, we thought we had the result in towns. Felt okay, more or less. You know, hey, we're done, but nobody else believed us. You see, and that's it. How is that without adaptive optics? I mean, I know the story. I've had Claire Max uh, in conversation before, and adaptive optics. I understand was was embargoed. It was a national security and et cetera. And we were. That's yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, so so at this point in the eighties, seventies, eighties, we we used infrared and long wavelengths infrared where adaptive optics actually doesn't really do much. Uh, 10 microns, with, and plus we didn't have 8 meter, 10 meter class telescopes, okay? So we would, we would observe on, on four or three meter class telescopes at 10 microns. And there, you know, if you have good seeing on Malakea, you're doing okay. Uh, and, this, and the technique at that time, as I said, you, you measured it spectro by spectroscopy, the Doppler motions, and so that that is, it. but the, the reason uh, the reason people felt uh, that they wouldn't believe us uh, was exactly that. Namely, they said, "Well, clouds of gas are very tenuous things. Plus, it's ionized gas. Ionized gas, you know, you can push around uh, with magnetic fields. You can push it around with stellar winds. How do you know that this is what you're measuring is gravity?" How do you know that this is orbiting gas? Could it be that it's actually 
ejected gas and so forth. And there's some truth to that. Although what we know now is, is does show that we had the right interpretation, but the question is whether it's believable. So the, the big jump then came into the 90s. Step number one, uh, exchange gas by stars, try to move the motions of the stars, and then uh, make, the, make that measurement as precisely as you can. And precise in this case means you have to measure the, the centroid of a, of, a, of a stellar object to more than one over 100 of its uh, diameter due to the seeing or due to the um, um, resolution of your telescope. And that's why indeed it became clear you cannot do that with normal uh, techniques. Uh, so that's where initially we used so-called speckle imaging, mm. where you would take short exposures, and in in any short exposure, in any short time, the atmosphere is, so to speak, then still more or less stationary. Uh, but after about a, a, you know thousands of a second, then the, the you know then the image gets distorted. And then, the, then two things happened at the end of that phase, uh, which is number one, we all went to bigger telescopes. Andrea first in the mid nineties. We at the uh, two thousand one, um, and then adaptive optics. Now you you mentioned that already. That the story of adaptive optics actually like the detectors we were using. I mean, the imaging detectors and the infrared also had the same, if you like heritage uh, like adaptive optics, namely mm, that for a long time, not now anymore, but at that time, they were all products of military uh, developments in, uh, in the United States because, of course, the uh, military people wanted to look at uh, Russian lights and satellites and so forth. And that was their way of uh, you know, look in the infrared. Of course, you can look at the the, the, the hot uh, exhaust of, of of rockets as they get launched, and that's the way to to predict, so to speak. Okay, there's an attack coming or something like this. And so that's how the imaging detectors in the infrared came about, and then the adaptive optics came about because uh, the military wanted to check out the details of of uh, spacecraft up there. Yeah. And and so in in the US uh, by by getting that technology to come out of the, the military sector, the classified sector, uh, was wonderful. And who did it? Towns, because towns uh, actually uh, was deep deeply involved in many of these connections between research and. And the government, and at the end of of the Cold War, or the Jasons, he was a. That's right, exactly. Jasons here. Yeah, yeah. He, he he was the one to suggest that Jason be founded, and um, no, it's clear. I mean, I should say in Europe, um, um, there was a civilian type uh, development, both of the adaptive optics, but also infrared detectors. Um, initially, that couldn't. Uh, couldn't be on par with the US just because, you know, the amount of money you have to have in order to develop a, a system like that initially is so high that uh, the kind of money astronomers uh, had in uh, either US or, or Europe wasn't enough. But nowadays it's different actually, so that, you know, the 
Uh, nowadays, astronomers develop um, top technologies, detectors, and so forth themselves. I'm mentioning this because um, Martin Harwood once wrote a very influential book um, where he basically, his thesis is that without uh, the, the access to military technology, uh, astronomy never would have gotten where, where, where it is now. And the yeah, others, it's truth to that. It's actually truth to that, certainly in space. Yeah, there's always been a partnership from Galileo, the first telescopes that he invented or he used. He tried to sell to the Venetian Senate to use for military spying on ships in the lagoons of uh, of Venice. So and that was one of the first things he realized he could make money off of astronomy. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, there's always been some connection between the military and and um, and now we see, you know, basically the Hubble uh, Space Telescope uh, is is kind of on a par with some of the best military spy satellites, except it looks in the opposite direction. And speaking of space, what would your project, your you know, the Gravity Group, what, what would what would be the evolution, and what could a spaceborne you know, where you don't even need adaptive optics? Um, or, you know, are we going to be there with things like JWST, or, or are we going to be able to observe? future follow-ups to not only the massive black hole in our galaxy, but maybe in others as well in the infrared? Yeah, well, that's a very good question. Um, um, I would say at first, most of us thought uh, that the sky was the limit. And indeed, you would go ahead and build ever bigger telescopes in space. And you see, I, I've had the, the privilege to be associated with two major space projects uh, as a PI Institute, uh, as well as being chair of various committees on the European side, ESA, the European Space Agency. And so initially for very long wavelengths, uh, infrared astronomy, far infrared astronomy, we all were thinking about an object in a telescope of substantial size. And in fact, the US thought they could launch a 30 meter um, Telescope 30 meters. Now, you have no rocket where this would fit in. Therefore, the idea was, you may, you know, may recall these pictures of, you know, uh, astronauts, uh, you know, assembling such structures uh, in, in near-Earth uh, orbit and, and, and building this, as it was called, the large deployable reflector. Now, that fell apart for the following reasons. Reason number one, we astronomers learned that near-Earth orbit is, is no good, absolutely no good. And even if you had a telescope there, it would still be disturbed by the Earth um, because of its thermal influence, all the space junk up there, et cetera, et cetera. So we want, uh, certainly in the infrared, but also now because of microwave background studies and so forth, you want to get away from Earth as much as possible. And, uh, okay, so no astronauts, uh, you know, with a screwdriver. Uh, so you would then think about, like in the case of James Webb Telescope, uh, structures which you can fold, and then when the launch is, 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 is taking place, you basically unfold and so forth. But that's very risky, very risky. And we'll see, I really, really hope, when James Webb will be launched, that it will actually unfold as, as prescribed. And so in Europe... 
we felt that this was just not not possible. Unfortunately, because we had then a similar mission, which in the end got uh, launched as a three and a half meter telescope, but it started as a deployable uh, eight meter telescope, and we had hoped it would be that size. And and in the end, the engineers in NISA said, "No, it's too risky." Whether that's the right decision or not, I don't know. Certainly, uh, you know, historically, I would say the more cautious Europeans, um, as a result of their being more cautious, they've went faster, actually. I mean, the James Webb has been on the books since the 90s, okay? They still don't have it up there. And now let's go to interferometry. And here this, the story is, is quite similar. In principle, you know, it's obvious what you have to do, right? I mean, you have to take, uh, launch, uh, you know, four, say, two and a half meter class telescope or something like this uh, into space. And then, you know, you do you know, magic to uh, align them. That should be possible. I mean, the, that's how Elisa also will want to operate. The problem, again, is station keeping. Mm -hmm. technology, and then the cost. Certainly in Europe, um, we just had a review again of the, of the ESA space mission led by Linda Tacone, and, and they looked at a space interferometer again, mm. and in the end, uh, threw it out. Mm. And even in the US, I mean, the idea of a space interferometer was around Two, two, one or two decade, decadal reviews ago, right? The TPF, the Terrestrial Planet Finder. My God, I mean, that's what everyone would like to do. But it wasn't realized, too costly. And so there is, I'm afraid, there is a, a sort of a truth in Martin Howard's uh, statement that there is sort of a limit. I call that sort of the region of death. <laughs> it's like in the super collider, yeah? If, if a project becomes larger than something, and the James Webb is, is awfully close to that. Yeah. It's then at least you have to uh, be fearful of that your project gets dragged out for, uh, you know, sheer incredible amounts of time, more than perhaps the, you know, the lifetime of a single scientist. No uh, but but it can't, if, you, if, you, if you go too far into this territory of death, it's just uh, societies will not, or at least understandably, will hesitate that's right. to yeah. spend that much money. So that's why I would say I'm afraid uh, for now it's it's gravity. And here I want to come back to Charlie Towns. And Towns wrote once a very nice um, piece for annual reviews of astronomy and astrophysics, one of these chapters on you know himself. And he described what he had done in astronomy and uh, amongst, uh, you will find, interferometry. Yeah. Okay, now you said interferometry is 90 years old. That's absolutely correct for the radio astronomy side. But you go to the infrared, uh, where you are much shorter wavelengths. Uh, the atmosphere is, is uh, shorter coherence time. And on top of it, typically, you have larger bandwidth. All of this conspires to make the problem more difficult by, by the factor of 100,000 or so. Mm -hmm. And so what is a pretty obvious thing to do in the, in the radio, and still pretty obvious in the millimeter, becomes absolutely, you know, extremely difficult 
in, in the article. Uh, now, Thomas did it at, at, at he used a trick at the time. He used 10 microns again, so a little longer. And he transformed the, the, the long wavelengths, the 10 micron radiation, into the radio through mixing. mixing okay, yeah. through mixing with lasers. And, and so that made it possible for him to do interferometry. In, in, this, in this wonderful little paper of this, he actually says, what I really want to do in the end is to look at the black hole uh, with interferometry. Wow. So that's what we have now done. In fact, unfortunately, uh, we succeeded only after he's passed away. But I, I knew about yeah, what we were doing. But now, just to, to tell you, I mean, the, the effort or the, the, the complexity in the end, the sensitivity, all of this, what we in the end had to realize was about, I would say, 100,000 times better than what Charlie had, had yeah. done. Yeah. So that's about a plan to use the Keck two telescopes of Keck to do interferometry, either in the optical or in the, uh, you know, some uh, micron. And it, I, to my knowledge, it didn't, it didn't produce anything. It was a, a vast technical challenge and m maybe it will, maybe it won't someday, but yeah, it's, it's exponentially harder to do it for the reasons that you mentioned. And I want to take uh, one other step, maybe laterally, and you know, and focus on these these questions that you know, you kind of are are rare, Reinhardt, because you have a commanding knowledge of the experimental side, of the practical side, but you also obviously understand the theoretical implications. A lot of my uh, work in you know as a teacher, as an experimental astrophysicist and communicator, is to tell people that there are other people. You know, Sir Roger is wonderful. You know, Stephen Hawking is wonderful. But these are theoreticians, and I almost feel like. Uh, a good experimentalist should should know the theory as well as a theorist, but maybe not create new theories. I mean, I think that's too much. But if you're just, you know, just applying, you know, the technology without understanding the theory, I don't think that's a fulfillment of what an experimentalist should do. And so I guess what I'm asking you is, what is your philosophy of a well-rounded scientist? Charlie was a paramount person like that in the tradition of Enrico Fermi, you know, one of the last people that could do theory, that could do experiment, um, that understood the fundamental question. What is your philosophy? The students that you mentor, the postdocs, et cetera, what do you try to inculcate in them to have them fulfill their potential as a complete scientist? Right. I mean, I would not uh, have the audacity to say that I understand the theoretical work at the depth which is needed in the end to make reliable um, statements, okay? So for instance, you know, if you want to um, investigate, you know, the star, the star cluster in the center and make a proposal how these stars would come about, that's uh, sufficiently complicated, I would say, that you know, I certainly wouldn't be able to, uh, to do that. And so here's rule number one, is you have to have a, team and after all that is what happens it's not a single individual here it's a substantial team which in our case of course grew over time was initially largely based at mpe but is now european okay i mean the interferometry is is uh, really involves uh, at, at this point about 100 people so uh, that's that's clearly not done anymore even at a uh, pretty well endowed Max Planck Institute, but it's it's the range of people in a team so that you know you can you can 
talk to people about the various things. And Towns knew that as well. Now, of course, his mantra, I still know, was, <clears throat> oh, I, uh, well, okay, the people at NASA are doing this, that, and the other thing. No, I don't want to do that. I, I think the best science is done only with a student. Yeah. <clears throat> Towns would insist on that, on that philosophy. That's where I would not agree with him. I mean, the, the fact, uh, you know, we talked about the performance room. You can, in, ret- in, in hindsight, you can, you know, talk, see his performance room as, a, as an incredible amount of pioneering of, of a field, but you could also call it a failure mm. because, you know, that he wouldn't get to the galactic center type uh, sensitivities was clear after fairly short period of time. And so this, you have to, you have to bite the bullet sometimes. You have to realize, okay, if you want to get there with this type of technique uh, to get that kind of resolution, you will have to go into a different domain of, of work. Uh, and that then includes larger teams and that uh, includes collaborations. Towns would like to collaborate with other teams. It was always, you know, the fifth floor in Burge. I mean, that's that's how, how we lived up there. Everyone, you know, up there was part of the gang. But <laughs> but I mean, I, I think I think I am very proud of this, that over time I managed to uh, bring to fruition and create what I call my Champions League team. <laughs> uh, so we we have people in, in Munich uh, who are you know top people, world class people. By themselves could be could be you know top people anywhere, and uh, the fact that they in the end chose to stay rather than become professor elsewhere may not happen too. But yeah. uh, uh, is 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 I'm extremely glad for that because that's the kind of thing. Uh, now, of course, another th- thing which I would say is important in addition to this sort of range of things, you have to write. You have to write have the right kind of hunting skill or smell. Okay, you have to sort of know what is and what isn't possible and where, you know, the time is ripe to get in. I mean, again, I could go with the interferometry and say, of course, I mean, I grew up as a radio astronomer. In my thesis uh, as, a, as a student, I, I used the BLBI to, to look at water vapor mazes in their motion. So I, I'm, you know, I'm an interferometrist at heart. Still, it was clear until, you know, about 15 years ago that inflammatory in the infrared, forget it. Yeah, not at the kind of sensitive. But now that's very different. What we are, what we are looking at here uh, is sort of the central few arc seconds in the upper left of the galactic center. The, the upper left is sort of the best you can do with a, uh, a 10 meter class telescope in seeing limited conditions. So what do you see? You see some very bright, near dark uh, stars. Okay, these these objects are really very massive. Actually, yeah. some of them are 100 solar mass, uh, uh, Wolfram stars, and then other stars very near the center. Now the center is right in the middle. Yep. Okay, and so if you had ra- radio eyes. And you would see in this very center this compact radio source Sagittarius star, which was sort of the first X marks the spot kind of uh, yeah. situation. So the, the adaptive optics then improves this image from the top left to the top right by about a factor of 20. 
mm. in resolution. So with a 10-meter telescope now and adaptive optics on under very good conditions, yeah, wow. Now you can see individual stars very clearly. Some of the brighter ones, of course, you can see the artifacts of the adaptive optics not being perfect. You see this sort of ringing there. Yeah. Um, and then now in the center, all of a sudden, uh, there it is. That's uh, J star. That's the black hole, which also there also irradiates. Okay, wow. and it, it's just on the top part of it, there's a little spot of the the upper part of the small uh, square. That's that star S two. So this image actually is from this year. So this star S two, which has been our uh, key uh, uh, object to look at for these orbits, uh, is already now sort of gone. Uh, outside of the center ah. uh, this year, okay? Uh, it was very near, in fact, more or less on top of, on these scales of the of the central object. But now, the interferometry. So, go well, you're now from this upper right image to the lower right image, hmm. okay? And again, that's the little, the, this little square which you see <laughs> under, is now what you see as a big square on the bottom. Yeah. Okay? And, whoops! What do you see? <laughs> Not only one object, but heck, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, or whatever. Yeah. Wow. And that, in fact, is is what um, what the breakthrough is. The breakthrough is the resolution, and therefore the, the precision of measuring things very accurately. Mm. But the other thing is also, also of course, uh, we can actually now with this kind of interferometry finally go deep. And so these, these fainter stars, which you see there, are fainter than what you can see in adaptive optics uh, 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 on the upper image, mainly because of confusion. Mm. It's not that, you know, a single, a single adaptive optics assistant telescope can go very, very deep. No. Uh, but in a crowded field like this, that's not the limit. The limit is really how you can distinguish. Yeah? And then you take several of these images over three months and then you get the, the, the left, uh, the bottom left, okay? Mm -hmm. So red was in, in, in March, uh, green is, is, is May, and blue is, is, is July. And wow, I mean, you look at that. I mean, there's, there's very obviously one star which came extremely close, even closer than S2. Another one is sort of moving the other way, and there are a few more, yeah? So it's... Uh, that's really the, the key thing. And I, I would say the interferometry uh, is a very serious contender now, in my view, mm. for certain types of measurements one would like to do. One other application where it's been a breakthrough without our actually expecting it was uh, exoplanet spectrum. Mm. So you wouldn't think that. I mean, you, if you should think about these exoplanets, I mean, the problem is you have a planet and then you have the much, 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 much brighter central star. <clears throat> and the, the way usually this is dealt with is um, you, you basically uh, you master the bright star and then you look only at, at the planet. Well, with adaptive optics, that's fine because then the star becomes relatively compact and you can actually see the planet. But the adaptive optics is not perfect. And the, and the star is, is, say, a billion times 
uh, or certainly a million times brighter than the uh, planet. And a little bit of this uncorrected light is then, uh, you know, floating around uh, near the planet and generates noise. So the noise is now not any more instrumental, so to speak, but it's due to uncompensated uh, 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 light from the scattering from the star. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah. And so the interferometry, on the other hand, uh, doesn't do that mm -hmm. because uh, the same effect in the, the adaptive optic systems on the on the individual telescopes which we're using also make you know, you know, uh, you know not not perfect correctors, but they're not correlated, and so the interferometer blends that out completely. Mm -hmm. So that's why all of a sudden the, the currently the spectra which we're producing with gravity of exoplanets uh, are the best in the world by a factor of ten. Are, are there any applications of polarimetry? I know that in yep. reflectometry, et cetera. How do you how how can that be used to enhance the scientific data? Well, I mean, the galactic center. Uh, what happens is you see. Let's uh, again look at the bottom left there. So this is what looks like a, a you know a light blue object in the center. That's a J star. Mm -hmm. So if you take a time trace of that, then you would see a varying on typically time scales of uh, 30 minutes or so, mm. um, which by the way is this uh, uh, orbital time scale of gas uh, on the innermost stable orbit. Okay, so that's our interpretation. That's what you're seeing here. It's very, very hot, about 10, 10 billion, 100 billion degrees, sorry, 100 billion degrees wow. uh, gas, which is doing uh, uh, on radiation. So it's polarized, typically 10 to 30 percent. So in fact, by uh, you know using wave plates, uh, we can analyze uh, the polarization of the emission. And we, what we find is that uh, the polarization is 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 highly aligned. And so we, with that technology, we can actually study magnetic fields yes. in the vicinity of the black hole. Extremely exciting. Yeah. Uh, extremely exciting because. Uh, one of the tenets in this field is that what you're seeing here, uh, most people would say, is gas, which has been accreted, although not like a quasar, but at very low levels. So there's a small amount of stuff falling into the galactic center. People would say, say, uh, an asteroid every two days or something like this, yeah, on this order. And, and that would explain the amount of radiation which, which we see. And then the magnetic field would be not in a disk, but in a sort of a yeah, donut uh, of this hot gas. And if, if, if the gas is dense, well, then, as you know, the magnetic field is tied to the gas, and then it would be dragged along in this disk-like configuration and would have sort of a toroidal uh, shape. Uh, when you look at what we're seeing uh, from the variability, that's not the case. It's mm. not toroidal. It's it's polaroidal. So you know, probably determined by the black hole. Mm -hmm. uh, a similar thing has just been found by the EHT um, measurements um, in M87. So that 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 really is a sort of a bit of a shock that the the, the magnetic field structure is is tied to the black hole itself rather than to the accretion zone. So that's the kind of stuff which you, you know. 
detect on on the side, you know, when you when you right. Yeah, yeah, it was an unintentional serendipitous discovery. I think about you know all the things that uh, when when I you know the founder of this field, obviously Einstein, in some sense. Um, I had a conversation with Barry Barish uh, last year and actually inspired me to write a second book about the uh, called Think Like a Nobel Prize winner. Hopefully you'll be in volume two. But Barry was the inspiration for volume one. And the reason was when he uh, told me that he suffers from the imposter syndrome. And I said, oh, yeah, I'm sure you did when you were at Berkeley as a kid and, you know, and you were you know around people like Lawrence and <laughs> whatever. No, he's like, no, no, no. I feel the imposter syndrome now, uh, even after winning the Nobel Prize, because when I got my Nobel Prize, I don't know if this happened to you, Reinhardt. You're a very curious person, just like Barry is. But he looked through the logbook. Um, I, I actually don't know if you've gotten a medal or whatever you've gotten, you've gotten, but he said when he accepted it in, in Sweden, he looked through the logbook to see who won it in the past. And he saw Feynman and Charlie and, and he saw Fermi and he saw Einstein. He's like, Oh my God, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. He's, he's too good. And I'm not good enough. And I said, come on, you're, you know, uh, Einstein was, um, he felt like he was an imposter compared to, uh, to Isaac Newton. He actually wrote about Isaac Newton as being, you know, the creator of all of Western civilization. And then I, I pointed out that Isaac Newton felt uh, inadequate compared to Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, but yeah, well, I mean, look, uh, Ryan, it's very clear that amongst uh, every group of people, the Nobel laureates are just another group of people. Uh, there's a range of, uh, of, of uh, uh, excellence, if you like, and, and, and different. But then, you know, I, I think I'm a little more cautious with the, how shall we say, the ultimate uh, Einsteinian uh, adoration. Because, I mean, if you look, you know, Einstein did all of this, yeah, but it's not that he found the first solution, right? I mean, that's what I was structured and, and, and other things like the expanding universe, you wouldn't believe that he was on the wrong train there. And, you know, and, and certainly uh, the whole issue of philosophical discussion uh, of, of the quantum theory and so forth, he was not always on the right side. So he had his failures to yeah, like, I know. like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I always joke that it's too bad that he had that blunder because he could have had a good career. But actually, what you're saying is exactly aligned with what I was going to ask you, which is that, you know, given that Einstein didn't really believe in black holes, he he called Lemaitre's idea atrocious. He uh, thought that gravitational waves would never be detected. He thought that, uh, you know, the quantum theory was uh, was unrealistic and and, uh, and and should be based on reality and, and measurable principles. Um, what aspect of your career might you say might people look back on you know a hundred years from now and say oh well Reinhardt was he was too timid he he wasn't he really didn't realize how powerful things could get uh is there anything like that or do you feel like you're very optimistic about the future of your subfield and physics in general that we are going to break to some ultimate law understanding of quantum gravity or of the true nature of the information loss or the nature of entropy and black holes you know as as a whole what what do you make of this well okay i mean certainly i would say i'm i'm a very much a pessimist most people feel that i'm sort of a uh, now there's there's pessimism and pessimism. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my father would always characterize this. My father was a physicist too, uh, by the way. Um, so he said, "Okay, well there's um, two extreme types of people. 
there's pessimism, there's optimism, and there's happy and there's sad. The worst people are sad pessimists. <laughs> yeah, but actually, happy optimists are not much better. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and so um, I, I always hope that I'm a, yeah. I'm a, I'm a, a positive uh, pessimist. But I mean, I think it's clear that we discussed this already that uh, we are, we, we happen to be in astronomy right now in an absolutely incredible phase. Yeah. And this will not go on. Uh, at this speed uh, forever, okay? That's one thing. The second thing is, depends on your taste. I am I use computers, uh, of course I do, uh, like we all do, but I'm not a hacker. Mm. And for my taste, if I were a new student now, I don't think I would go into astronomy because, I mean, I think it's just not my thing yeah. to, to, you know, to only sit there and, and do MC, MC, and, and the rest of it. No. Uh, just different people are differently. I mean, I, I mean, I, I use, I mean, if I want to test something, I would test things by basically looking at the project, a problem from different sides, and, and check out plausibility and, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And not only relying on, you know, a hundred thousand uh, MC, MC. <laughs> Uh, if the if the noise is not Gaussian, which it never is, that's right. <laughs> what do you do, right? <laughs> so, so I, I think I think that's uh, clearly what what in astronomy, it's what's coming next. Say on the one hand, uh, huge huge surveys where you can't really think about anything anymore, but you have to dump it into some uh, you know artificial intelligence thing and then then with artificial intelligence I'm you know I would say okay if you if you program the thing to recognize uh, rats and dogs and all of a sudden there's an elephant in the image <laughs> what does the, what does the artificial intelligence do okay so sorry for my inappropriate uh, comment here but uh, uh, so that's one side the other side is that as absolutely fascinating the exoplanet uh, story is and will be in terms of, uh, you know, getting at the chemical composition of, of exoplanets and seeing all these different types and so forth. I think that wouldn't excite me personally. It's just a personal preference. Uh, so I would, I would go do something else instead. So uh, it, it just... At least for me, I was lucky to be in the right place uh, at the right time, and I think had the right mentors. That's uh, I think I find that extremely important, and I find it a little sad that mentors have gotten lately as a sort of a concept into a bit of a uh, bad dis dis uh, reputation because people feel okay, well maybe people are abusing. Uh, the mentorship in, in some some fashion, yeah. um, and certainly in a team, if you have only people who say I want to be I I I and I, uh, then as you well know, I mean that that's that's not possible. You have to give and take a little bit, and it's all different different types of people there. 
when you mentioned, you know, in, in a past interview, you kind of are, you consider yourself the son of two fathers, obviously Charlie Towns, we talked about, talk about your father, Ludwig, what would you like to tell him, you know, about, about what, you, what you've discovered and, and what you're excited about, even pessimistic as you are? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, my, my father was, uh, you know, a super experimentalist. I mean, I'm, I'm a, uh, I'm a dwarf compared to my father. He would really do things, everything by himself. Even even when he was uh, already pretty bad shape in health wise, he couldn't really move around anymore. Uh, he would go ahead and build little apparatus of all kinds, mostly electronic type apparatus, and then have young people come and uh, he would explain it to them. Uh, so he loved that enormously. And so this. This, my father was, a, as a physicist, was successful uh, as a teacher like, like, like hell. I mean, he was a solid-state physicist. And I would say, you know, his students and postdocs and so forth, he educated. There must have been probably 50 professors at German University. Uh, no, I think it's... Very, very successful at that. And everyone who heard his lectures uh, was absolutely uh, excited about them, including me. Mm -hmm. I, of course, inherited his superbly handwritten notes for lectures. And I used them here in Berkeley for, you know, uh, for quantum lecture, for quantum physics lectures and so forth. Really wonderfully done. I mean, in a, in a, in a you know, very clear... Uh, very well spelled out, uh, but understandable. Yeah, not hidden behind, you know, too much, uh, you know, complexity in mathematics, but as 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 obvious as you can make it. So that was very good. Now, I, initially, when I was a boy, I, I had two things. I was like, I wanted to become an archaeologist, mm. um, and then I did a lot of sports. Mm. My father didn't like that. That was not good. Okay, clearly. Now, the archaeology the, sort of uh, evaporated after a little while because I, I realized that uh, I would have to go to, uh, I thought, Greece and, and, and Egypt and so it was all done. And so where would I go? Well, you know, somewhere in the jungle. And jungle has snakes. <laughs> Etc. No go. No go. Or a pessimist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, vacation in the in the coastal. And region. yeah, but in the sports, I, I really seriously, I, I, I try to, uh, you know, go to the Olympics. I you know almost made it into the A team, but then my elbow, I, I did javelin throwing, so I, I was. I didn't know that. What what sport was that, Renner? Uh, track and field. So oh, I right. was. Yeah, yeah. No, I was. When I was 16 years old, I was Germany's best uh, javelin thrower. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. But, wow. Uh, but uh, as I said, a javelin is a, is a very tricky uh, discipline because the, the centrifugal, centrifugal force, if you throw the thing more than, say, 70 meters uh, uh, at, the, at the tendons here, okay, Stress. Uh, it, it's so high that if you're not perfect in technique, uh, you basically rip out little bits and pieces of your tenants, which happened to me. And it happens to almost every javelin thrower. And then if you do go immediately get that fixed, 
uh, or not properly fixed, and then you're out, out of out of business. And I, I did also the decathlon and pentathlon and these kind of things. But of course, once I studied physics, that I knew I had to I had to make a choice. So you did Can't. get a you did win a gold medal. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and and then- uh, one question I had for you uh, was your decision to, you know, to move more permanently to back to Germany. Was that more personal or I've heard actually had uh, Lord Martin Reese on my podcast earlier this year. And he, he was saying, you know, one of the models that that's appealing uh, is the Max Planck you know, Institute model where, where you have you're more decoupled from from teaching and the responsibilities that you know say i have or you had when you were in berkeley um you know and and yes you don't get to do the one-on-one with a student you know or you know my friend and our friend paul richards you know with his students and and he's been a, a great mentor to me uh but um but you lose that but on the other hand you have more kind of um I don't know, maybe more, there's more, uh, efficiency because you can only have postdocs and, and theory and, uh, and professor level people. So was that part of the reason you moved back to Germany or, or was that? Well, okay. I mean, I think the, the situation in, in that sense was complicated. I, I, I love Berkeley. I really do. Yeah. I still do. That's why I'm here. Yeah, uh, and, and, uh, world was wonderful. Family liked uh, California. In fact, my older daughter is here permanently in, in, in California. So all of this was wonderful. The weather was, you know, double A plus. Uh, what else would you? Better than well, it was clear that. I mean, see, the Galactic Center is not the only thing I'm doing. I mean, I'm doing extragalactic. Uh, cosmology uh, of galaxies and so forth and star formation and all of that and molecular spectroscopy and, and all of that. And it was clear then that uh, the kind of resources you would need for, the, for both building instruments but also for doing things would be definitely above the scale of sort of a single NSF grant. And you see, Towns was in a totally different regime. If you go back to his great times when he did the uh, the Mesa at Columbia, um, the, the the funding was very much like Max Planck. Uh, there was a colonel from the Air Force coming every every year, he said, and there were at that time. Two good Nobel laureates, Isidore Rabi and Kush. Yeah. He was the assistant professor. Okay, in fact, Kush and Rabi tried to get Towns off the off the laser and Mesa, right? I said, Charlie, you know, you're a very good physicist, but you know, this is what you're doing there is not going to lead anywhere. Uh, you know, we we recommend you do some molecular beams. Okay, don't 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 do this. This is going to you know, you won't get tenure. I mean, anyhow, so. The, the, the colonel came every year and, and visited the labs. That's what Towns told you, and, and basically uh, walked around and they told them, you know, showed them equipment they had and so forth. At the end of the day, he then then said, "Well, it looks wonderful what you guys are doing. Well, I'll, I'll make sure the check check is arriving next week." <laughs> yes, that that was that was how. How things went at that time, and in fact, Tom's for quite a quite a while got this kind of a deal from the Navy, 
they gave him money directly without, yeah. But of course, I, when I was trying to do my, my thing here, like you and, and everyone else, you know, how many proposals are you writing per year? And, and, and for ridiculous sums of money. Yeah. Okay. You, you, be, you, you use two weeks to be excellent uh, for $5,000. Come on. And now here in Berkeley, there was a thing called Radio Lab, Radio Astronomy Lab. So they, in fact, had state funding. Not anymore, by the way, which means that which is the reason why the radio lab has ceased to exist. But all the, the wonderful discoveries, the millimeter interferometry, uh, Jack Welch, and in fact, Townsend's uh, discoveries with Jack Welch on, on detection of molecules, uh, all were part of this sort of state funding thing where they had enough money to have a few senior people, postdocs, etc. And it was clear to me that it's that kind of Funding was needed, and but ever more impossible. And then came you know, clearly the, the Reagan years, uh, where you know there was not all that much interest in interest in, in this kind of. Okay, if you had connection to NASA, different story, uh, but we didn't at the time. Okay, so that and then on the other hand, I knew Max Planck because I had done my my thesis at the Max Planck Institute. My father was Max Planck director then. Uh, so I knew everything about the society, and I, uh, I, I knew well. Okay, whilst Berkeley is great, uh, you know, probably Max Planck is, is a little better. Than absolutely, it was. I mean, that was the. Uh, I mean, blue skies or not, that was the right decision. <laughs> uh, basically, you know, this what they call the long trust. So they basically, you know, you're being process is pretty difficult and takes a long time. But then once you're hired, you know, okay, there are visiting committees coming and checking on you. But, but really, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful system. You don't have to write proposals unless you want to do more than than sort of the, the standard funding of a Max Planck group. But yeah, if you want to do that, then then it's very difficult. But, but, but it's it's wonderful. I'm not sure, here comes the pessimist, that this system will, uh, you know, really uh, be able to sustain the times because it's too much, in a way, uh, centered on the directors. So we are the senior staff. Uh, yeah, as I said, the Champions League team mm -hmm. is not recognized by the MPG. And that's, uh, I don't understand it. And, and, and okay, now, of course, MPG and MPG is not the same thing. I mean, uh, our institute, if you like, is an extreme institute in terms of cost of experiments, space work, and all of that. Uh, a typical institute, a typical Max Planck director has a group of maybe 10, 15 people, you know, at the heyday of, of Herschel, we built almost 60. Uh, so, I mean, there are differences between institutes, but clearly um, uh, we, are, we are not very well tuned to the, the situation that you have very senior, highly qualified uh, senior scientists who have essentially no official uh, recognition in society. Ah, okay, who is this? Yeah. 
<laughs> well, Reinhardt, I want to finish up if you have a couple more minutes left with uh, some questions that I ask all my guests that are so gracious with me as you have been today and uh, throughout the time that I've observed your career and uh, really been fascinated by the by the breadth and the depth that you engage in uh, from radio astronomy and uh, work with ALMA and uh, APEX, et cetera, and uh, Atacama to, to obviously the work uh, that garnered you this Nobel Prize. So I want to first ask you um, a, a question that I asked kind of in the spirit of Richard Feynman, who said that the shortest sentence that summarizes the most information about the physical universe is what he called the atomic hypothesis that everything's made of atoms spinning around. I want to ask you, what do you think is the most fascinating aspect of the physical universe that you've discovered in your life uh, that you'd most want to, say, engrave on a time capsule uh, for other uh, civilizations, maybe billions of years from now, when the people that live around Sajay Star come to visit Earth? Um, <laughs> what, would you, what would you tell them about what humanity has discovered as of 2021? Well, I would say for, for sure the universe is beautiful. I mean, I think it's just, I always, my, my uh, allegorical uh, walk through the forest where basically uh, I say, you know, doing astronomy in many ways is going into a new forest which you've never been in and, and you look at all these beautiful trees and, and so forth and Wow, and they're so big, and there's this, and there's that, and there's the flowers there, the red flowers and blue flowers and all of that. So they explore the universe and its beauty. And now comes the physics part. Uh, then you discover, however, after a little while of studying, um, and you better be sure to, to study it well, um, that's what Towns would have said, then you would find that the blue flowers happen to be always on the left side of the road. Now that gives you a thought, you know, why, why is that? Okay, why, why would that be? And, and, and then you develop an idea why that might be. Then you go ahead and test it, say, and you make more experiments and, and, and so forth. So that's, that's my view. I mean, it's the, it's, so there's the beauty part, awesome. And then the next thing is, of course, you then zoom into the few important physical questions and, and, and don't get... That's also important, of course. Don't get completely fascinated only by the complexity. I mean, you know, then then it becomes a hodgepodge of uh, uh, you know und undigested ideas. You have to you have to get to this point where you're you're picking out the real gems of the of the wonderful universe. <laughs> That's delightful. Okay, so we went billions of years into the future with that question. Now we're going to go uh, maybe 30, 40, 50 years back in the past. And it's the name of this podcast is Into the Impossible because Sir Arthur C. Clarke, uh, who is the namesake of the center that I co-direct at UC San Diego, he said, the only way of determining the limits of the possible is to venture beyond them into the impossible. And I want to ask you, Reinhardt, is there anything that seemed impossible to you as a 20-year-old, perhaps a 30-year-old, uh, that because of your courage, you found that it was possible by only going outside your comfort zone? Is there anything that gave you the courage or advice to your former self that you would give to a young Reinhardt, you know, to go into the impossible? Any advice to your former self? Yeah, well, okay. I mean, again, let me come back to the sports. I think that uh, the sports for me was a uniquely preparatory 
I didn't know that, but I mean, that's certainly, I would say, it's uniquely preparatory pre-exercise to do science because um, you really sometimes have to bite your, yeah, you have to you know, work extremely hard. You have to stay at it. You have to focus. And the focusing part is, I would say, something which I took from that and that helped me uh, to you know get sufficiently deep um, you know some some problems are just of a type where you uh, you have to look at it first I mean as I said we like the forest I mean it's uh, uh, people some people I, I, I see uh, go into the forest, and then they exit again, okay? But you have to first study, you have to really work hard to, to apply it. And then, then, of course, the other thing I, I said, you have to have a certain sense of smell where the, the flu, blue flowers might be found and, and how you check that out. I mean, it's, and I guess I was lucky and I had the right people with me. That's that's. That's, uh, that makes all the difference. Well, Reinhard Gensel, uh, fellow uh, colleague here in San Diego, or in California, rather, at least for the time being, would love to get you down here in San Diego if you can ever break yourself away from the winter time in Germany and, <laughs> and don't want to visit your daughter. Maybe you come down here and visit me in San Diego. Uh, I would love to see you in person again. We haven't been in person since that town symposium in 2005, and that's too long, although we've been together virtually now a couple of times. Uh, Reinhard, thank you so much for spending so much of your time with me and going into the impossible with my audience. Okay, thank you. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Riding high at the Into the Impossible podcast, we recently broke into the top 10 in all of science in the Apple podcast rankings, and it just delights me uh, to no end that we are being uh, so lovingly treated and rated and viewed and listened by all of you, both in uh, Apple Audio, Podcast, Spotify, Overcast, wherever you get your podcasts. And I do urge you to keep sending in those reviews. I read each and every one, like this one that I just received recently. I'll read it here from someone called Beckins B, who says, I love listening to Into the Impossible. Never disappoints. Brian seems to have such a good rapport with so many scientists of distinction. He gets to the heart of things in a way that even I, an artist, can kind of grasp. Well, thank you, Beckins B. That really means the multiverse to me, as I always say. Thank you so much uh, for all your encomia and, uh, and encouragement, because it's hard to do this without uh, feeling like sometimes I'm screaming into the void. And uh, I want you all to come along on this ride. We have many, many uh, phenomenal minds coming up. Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell is soon to be on the show. Marilyn Simons and also in a conversation, very special conversation with Hakeem Olushei. You won't want to miss any of those. And later on this year, this coming quarter, we have David Chalmers coming on person who coined the term uh, the hard pro problem of consciousness and we also have a very special episode with ed young writer and pulitzer prize winner for i contain multitudes he's coming on to discuss his fascinating new book as well later on in the year so you don't want to miss it subscribe follow rate and review this podcast wherever you consume them and don't forget to go on apple 
uh, iTunes if you're watching this and go on to YouTube if you're listening to this and subscribe Dr. Brian Keating over there on YouTube. We just broke through the 50,000 followers mark in just over about a year and a half. It's unbelievable. And as you know, I want to keep growing it because I want to promote the work of scientists, authors, thinkers so that they can sell more books. They give me a taste of each book. No, I don't get any. But, um, but I love doing it. Books inspired me. Books furnish a life, as Richard Dawkins said. Still trying to get him on the show. Uh, stay tuned for that, maybe. But they furnish a life. They are a form of magic, as Carl Sagan said, that translates time and translates space from an author's mind to your mind. So I want to encourage people to write and to read. And it's my way of giving back. And I get the side benefit of getting the education that I should have gotten perhaps as a youth, but it did inspire me to become a scientist, I'm sure. Uh, so please uh, do the favor of, of getting all the books and articles and so forth that you can find from all of my guests.